when considering the question why we practice Lumpur Cha, often referred to the simile of fruit. If you don't bite into the fruit and taste it, you never really know what its taste is. If we never practice, we don't really know what the Buddha was pointing to and talking about. You might have an apple, you can see its shape, its color, even get some smell from it. You have to bite through the skin to actually get the taste of it, know its taste, its texture. Why do we come to practice? Partly it's out of faith or belief that it's going to bring us benefit. We have sata, we have pasata, confidence. Confidence in the teacher, confidence in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Then also we have our own internal reflection. Seeing the potential, the possibility for benefiting from the practice brings up the courage, the effort, the willingness to proceed with the practice. We all want peace, we all want happiness. But to experience that we have to develop the right causes. That means putting forth effort in the practice. And we see that when we come to sit meditation, it's one thing to read the Buddha's teachings or hear a talk, understand them intellectually. But to know the mind that is peaceful and free from suffering requires practice, putting effort into our arousing mindfulness, clear comprehension as we chant ardent, fully aware and mindful. So we use meditation objects to do that. We use the breath, bhutto, or any of the other 40 meditation objects as a way to train the mind to cultivate these qualities which will help us to know the Dhamma rather than just remembering the Dhamma or thinking about Dhamma, actually coming to know truth, the Dhamma as it is.
as we meditate, then naturally there are obstacles. It's easier said than done. The obstacles are the hindrances, the five hindrances we talk about so much. So to deal with them we have to keep establishing mindfulness, putting effort into that, bringing up alertness, or all-round knowing of what we're doing. Ajahn Chah used to say we have a conversation with ourselves to check what we're doing, why, what's going on. So using the breath as our meditation object. Our aim is to practice sati with the breath, recollect the breath, keep it in mind, remember it. Sampajanya is knowing whether the mind is with the breath or not. If not, why not? Where's it gone? Bring it back. To know the nature of the breath that we're recollecting. To know why we're doing it. What our goal is. And so on. And because we have faith in our teachers and in what we've understood so far of the practice, where well, we can keep putting forth effort, persevering, bringing up persistent effort, using sati, sambhajanya, using wiriya, effort, persistent effort, applied to recollecting the breath, overcoming the hindrances. We also use wisdom, right view, to guide this uh, practice that we're doing. And that's again where sometimes a conversation takes place. We're looking at what's going on, whether we're with the breath or not. If not, what's the problem? What are the obstacles that are coming up? Is there some solution, something we can do to get through the obstacle, get beyond it. It's a process of wise reflection, yoniso manasikara, looking at where our mind is going, where is it dwelling, they say, say the main Obstacle to the mind calming down is sensual desire. So by putting unwise attention on the objects of sensual desire, sensual desire arises. Desire for imagining, thinking about see, the body that is attractive. We remember and fantasize about people's bodies that are in, and we focus our mind on that which is attractive. This is a cause for sensual desire to arise. What we call inappropriate attention. So we're actually bringing up 
an obstacle, a hindrance to the path, to the cultivation of the path, development of the mind. So we have to bring up appropriate attention, put attention on the unattractive side of the body. If it's ill will, it's because we're putting inappropriate attention on that object, that which stimulates ill will. We remember and think about things that annoy us, irritate us, get us angry. We have to bring up appropriate attention to that which calms the mind down, brings up goodwill, tolerance, calm. Sloth and torpor arises because we have inappropriate attention to mental states of boredom, dullness, drowsiness. We have to put appropriate attention onto mental states that brighten the mind, bring up alertness, energy. Restlessness, agitation of mind comes up because of inappropriate attention to the objects of restlessness and agitation, the objects of worry, anxiety, things we've said and done in the past, business that's unfinished, undone, and so on. You have to recognize that and draw the mind back to that which we give appropriate attention to that which calms the mind, doesn't agitate the mind, doesn't lead to restlessness, anxiety. And the breath is a very good object to calm the mind, bring the mind to the present moment, let go of the present, uh, the future, the past. Uncertainty, skeptical doubt inappropriate attention to it, asking yourself questions, mm. analyzing things that can't be answered, that we can't resolve in our meditation, and putting the mind to appropriately attend to that which brings up a sense of certainty. This isn't the certainty of delusion, just Maybe hearing the Dhamma that makes sense, applying it, applying effort to the practice, remembering Dhamma teachings. And doubt is often coming when we just have foolish, inappropriate questions or unanswerable questions that just spin the mind out, can't, can't be answered and don't bring the mind to mindfulness and peace in the present moment. all the hindrances have their causes and then we have ways to deal with them. But the most deep-seated hindrance is the attachment to this sensual desire based on the body but also material things, the pleasures of the world, the attractiveness of 
the things of the world that we experience through the senses. So one of the constant reflections and practices we're developing is the perception, developing the perception of asupa, the unattractiveness particularly directed to the body, the first foundation of mindfulness. Why is it the Buddha taught the Buddha, uh, the sutta on the foundations of mindfulness? And why did he begin with the body? Because it's like the most, the biggest hurdle to overcome in breaking through the causes of suffering, abandoning the causes of suffering, transcending them, getting through to see the Dhamma. The body is where our attachment begins and ends, you might say. The sense of self-identification with this body is me, mine, or theirs. The identification with this body is something desirable, as a self, as a being, a person, and the identification with others, their bodies, is desirable. When we consider the five hint, um, aggregates, you know, we call it rupa dhamma, the first aggregate, form. Don't even use the word body, it's just form. There's no name on that, no title, description, form is just form, Rupa Dhamma, and it's Anicca Dukkha Anatta. And said, you're contemplating the body, you're directly looking at this habit of creating a, an assumed reality, the conventional reality that we, the mind keeps dropping into accepting, taking for granted, going along with. This body is me, it's a self, it's mine. Just from facial recognition, of the, the way we look, the name we give, we're given, or we take, and flowing out from all that, all the assumptions, the attachments, based around this body and the sense of self-identity with the body. In the lay life, it's so difficult to contemplate this. Everyone just takes it for granted, granted that they are their bodies. This is me, this is who I am. Our culture promotes it more and more, self-image, the way we dress, the way we style ourselves, our figure, the color of our skin, our hair, and so on. We just take it all for granted. This is why you might say the holy life begins with taking up the body for mindful contemplation. When you enter the robes, in the first meditation you're given, air of the head, air of the body, nails, teeth, skin. 
This is our ordination procedure the Buddha wanted monastics to reflect, begin reflecting on the body as an object of meditation, mindfulness. To start stripping down and breaking through the, the assumption that I am this body and the attraction to it, the satisfaction in, in it. And obviously where the satisfaction, it's also a condition for dissatisfaction. So part of the sensual attraction to the body is also the discontent, dissatisfaction around it, not happy with the way we look. It's still sensuality, even though it leads on to aversion, ill will. So from day one, when we shave our head, put on the robes, we take up body contemplation as part of our life as monastics. Something we do repeatedly. And that's, especially in the beginning, the best way to do it, just keep coming back to the body as an object of mindfulness. Visualize it, get to know it. Be mindful of hair, nails, teeth, skin. Reflect on it, reflect on the unattractiveness of the body. Challenge the habit of always looking for the attraction in the body. You contemplate for you, your own personality and karma, how do you perceive your body and other people's bodies? What do you like, especially in the opposite sex? We like certain body shapes and textures, colors. Start observing that. Observe the discontent, dissatisfaction with the unattractive sides of the body, how we don't like to think about it, look at it, be with it. We don't really like to talk about it. It's often considered impolite to talk about bodily, bodily functions and the unattractive side of a body. And now we're taking it up directly, day by day, regularly, frequently. Whether it's during the course of a period of sitting or walking meditation or just natural observation, observing your own body as it is how it changes with time. The aging process. Our hair changes, the receding hairline, the changing color from dark to light as the hair grays, goes white. The changing nature of skin over time with aging, the effect of the weather. Often as monks, we spend a lot of time outdoors. Sometimes the weather affects our skin we get moles and color, discoloration of the skin. We get the hardening of the skin where we walk, bindabata, or just walk around barefoot. Where you sit, you sit puppy up or sit meditation, often you get hard calluses or just hard skin in certain areas that are always being rubbed. 
very simple observations, but you keep reflecting on both the unattractiveness and then the impermanence of body. Obviously we go through the body parts, one by one, the 32 parts, learn to visualize them, mentally visualize them, just looking at them with mindful awareness, alert, ardent, fully aware, and with right view, wisdom. You know, each body part doesn't have a name, doesn't have an owner. We're just looking, observing as things are. Changing the habit of the mind that formerly loved to look at the body and look for attraction and satisfaction in the body. The beautiful bits, the pleasing bits. It's just such an ingrained habit. We don't question it, we don't notice it. But now we are, we're questioning it, we're noticing. We're noticing the bits that we before we didn't notice. So we're changing our perception. Balancing it up, bringing it more in line with Dhamma, with truth. This is something your average person doesn't want to do. Some people get up and walk out of a Dhamma talk about body contemplation. They just don't want to listen. Just the idea of it is, is unattractive to them. We don't like to think about it, we don't like to do it. You know, how long can you keep your mind contemplating different aspects of your body, the foulness of the body, or just going through the 32 parts? Maybe you can hold attention for a few moments and then off we go thinking about something more interesting. It takes effort, mindfulness, alertness, full awareness to keep recollecting the body, keep bringing the attention back to the body. Just to stay with the body for, say, 15 minutes as, a, as an exercise, visualizing it, contemplating it, th even just thinking about it, takes effort. It's repulsive. Doesn't immediately grab our attention. So we have to work at it. The first five objects of contemplation, you know, they're the superficial external ones, the easy ones that we see all the time. So it can be very fruitful because it is easier to contemplate hair, nails, teeth, skin, and we see them in ourselves and others very quickly and obviously. Or you can find great benefit just looking more at hair as hair rather than an hairstyles and what you like and don't like about them, the smell, the colour and so on, just seeing hair as hair, skin as skin and so on. The hard part is when you peel the skin off. You know, we don't like to look inside the body, we're not used to it, we're not familiar with it and it tends to promote visual images of corpses and horror movies and accidents, hospital operations and so on. Already it promotes a lot of um, 
repulsion and brings up difficulty to contemplate. So again, it takes time. Regular contemplation is practice, maybe doing as if an autopsy on yourself, regularly putting yourself on a slab, using a scalpel to cut through. If you do see the videos of an autopsy, you imagine cutting the forehead the way they do and they pull the skin over the face down and then the skin back over the scalp, the skull. And they get a little drill, drill the brain, uh, drill the bone of the skull to get through it because it's very hard, harder than we might think. When you see the video of an autopsy, the bits of bone fly everywhere as the guy's drilling. It's messy. And they pull the top of the skull off so you can see the brain. Meanwhile, the skin has been pulled down like a flap over the nose and the mouth. So you see the inside part of the skin. You understand why the Buddha said it's a sealed bag of skin. It's like a bag. Pulling down a piece of sacking or thick PVC or something. Even skin is quite tough in itself. There's many layers of skin, but the inside is moist, different color, obviously totally different from the external surface of the skin, which is mostly dead cells. Or you imagine taking a scalpel down your own chest from the neck down to the navel, opening up your chest, seeing the red of the flesh, the bones of the chest, bringing a, an implement not so much different from the tree lopper. And they cut the bones of the rib, take them off so that you can see the organs inside, see the heart, the lungs, the liver, intestine, small intestine, large intestine, stomach, bladder, spleen, kidneys. They, all, all the organs have different colors different shapes, obviously different functions. If you see a real autopsy, well, there's always the smell. It's probably the first thing you have to deal with. The smell of a human body from the inside out is unpleasant. If you see the autopsy on somebody, once you've opened the skin, taken the bones off the ribs, see all the internal organs, and there's no immediate sense of male or female, young or old there. It's just organs of the body. If you don't see the head and the general appearance of that person, you don't really sense it as, as a person with a name, a gender, age anymore. It's just body parts. And then the person conducting the autopsy will take the, each body part out and place them on the slab. Again, no name on the brain, the heart, just color, shape, texture, smell. So already breaking down the perception of self, 
self-identification with this body, me, mine, myself, them, this, themselves, male, female, attractive, unattractive, young, old, all the labels and perceptions that we carry around and take for granted start to disappear when we do this practice mindfully, with mindfulness directed to the body. Whether it's just noticing it as we go through our day, the look, the feel, the sensation of the body, or in a very quiet meditation like this, visualizing it, going through the body parts, separating them out, dissecting them out. Take it one step further, contemplate the four elements. If you see an autopsy, often they, they pick the lungs up and they squeeze them and you get bubbles coming through whatever liquid is left, whether it's blood or other liquids. There's still some air in the lungs and it bubbles out. It's the solidity of the bones, nails and teeth. Flesh has mixture, doesn't it? It has weight, but has a lot of moisture in it. The organs they still have a lot of moisture in them. Obviously the breath is gone when you contemplate a dead body. When you're alive though, you contemplate the breath. It's also a body part in the sense. It's an element, it's the breath element. Oxygenating the blood. There's no name on that, no person doesn't belong to me, you, us or them. It's just oxygen and the effect of carbon dioxide. Colour of blood changes depending on what's in it, how much oxygen is in it or not. It's darker, it's lighter. Practicing like this, when the mind is ready for it, the mind feels calm enough, at ease enough, is in a wholesome state with right view guiding it, is a very liberating experience. You're liberating your mind from its obsession and attachment to the conventional assumed reality. Now we're just getting down to the Dhamma. Seeing the 32 parts Seeing the four elements, seeing the lack of self in them. It's a liberating experience. Or one may go on to do the corpse meditations. Even if one finds it difficult to consider oneself as a corpse, and living in the forest, we're fortunate from time to time we get to see dead deer, dead kangaroos. You can see the process of decomposition, stage by stage. The initial stage of discoloration. If it's a human, you know, we have light-colored skin, so discoloration of a corpse is very obvious. Purpley, greeny colors come. Get moisture starting to 
come out of the body. Things change, get tightness of the skin in certain places, get sinking in other places. It's a corpse in the forest, you see how the fur just starts to drop off after a while. The body swells up, gets bloated with different chemical changes going on, decomposition. Generally you get flies laying their eggs so they get maggots, so you start to get movement even if you can't immediately see the maggots, you see the movement of them inside the skin, moving around. What are they doing? They're eating. They're eating the internal organs and flesh. And generally, if it's in the forest, you get birds and foxes and wild dogs come along and start pecking and pulling, they peck the eyes out, peck a hole somewhere and start pulling out bits of flesh, bits of internal organs. The smell gets worse, moisture starts to come out. So you see the water element, the liquid element, just comes out and just mixes with the earth. So maybe the earth around that animal corpse stains and dries. Gradually the animals take away all the bits and pieces. You just get the odd bit of skin, the odd bit of flesh. The bones become apparent. You can still maybe see some shape of the animal, but gradually the bones get pulled apart. <coughs> so the shape of the animal disappears, and you've just got scattered bones with a little bit of blood or dry skin or flesh around them, but not much. Eventually even the bones just get taken off usually by foxes or wild dogs. Nothing is left, maybe just a bit of stain, a bit of fur or something on the ground and that's it. Gone. If it was us, it'd be exactly the same. If we just left one of the monks, if one of the monks died, just left them out in the forest, it'd be exactly the same. The animals would have a field day. The foxes, the wild dogs, the crows, the magpies. They wouldn't be bothered what, who it was, who this monk was, where they lived, what they did, who their family was, what their personal history was. To them it's just food. To the bacteria that help decompose the body, it's just food. To the maggots, it's just food. It's just nutrition, it's just four elements. And that monk would just disappear gradually. All be left is a little bit of, maybe a little bit of hair, a few bones scattered around, a bit of stained earth, some smell, and then gone. That's what we take for ourself. That's what we lust after. We have passion for, passion for this body and what we can do with it, passion for other people's bodies. Of course, as an intellectual exercise, everyone says this is very depressing. Makes us feel depressed, revolted, 
want to give up on life. This is why we practice it in conjunction with the other factors of the past. The dana, the sila, the brahma viharas, and then the samatha, calming the mind to support this investigation and insight into the three characteristics directed to this body. But we have no choice if we really want to train the mind to break through delusion, then we have to do this. And this body is dukkha. It's the first noble truth. Dukkha has to be known for what it is. It's suffering. It's the mind that clings on to the body with ignorance, conditioning, craving, conditioning, clinging. To remove that ignorance, we have to direct the mind to look at what it's clinging to and understand it better fully, just know it's, that's what it is. It's something that is anicca, dukkha, anatta. But this has a liberating effect on the mind. So when mindfulness is established, clear comprehension is established, there's persistent effort, wisdom and right view are established and used, the result is a letting go a relinquishment of attachment, a liberation of mind. So it's actually freeing the mind from attachment brings joy, happiness, calm, peace, serenity, all the factors of enlightenment, equanimity. What the mind is formerly clung to, defended, wanted, held on to, now it realizes it doesn't have to do that, it can let go. So the mind is happy, putting down a burden that was, was a burden. A burden is something that's heavy. Putting down the burden is light, it's happy. The mind is free. And this process of cultivating the path of contemplation of the body, it's the way the Four Noble Truths come to actually be an experience for the mind rather than just a, an intellectual study in a book. It's something we have to keep coming back to over and over again daily reflections, reflection on food as we eat, reflection on the body as we move around, do things. Posture is also constantly hiding, changing posture constantly hides the dukkha of the body. You're just listening to a Dhamma talk, we wriggle, we move around. We establish mindfulness on this, what, how we constantly react to the body and then the feelings that are generated from it, moving towards pleasure, moving away from pain. Keep watching that as you go through your day. As you sit, then you want to get up. As you move around, as you want to sit down again, as you want to lie down. This is the new moon night, who posted a night. If you take 
take on to practice through the night. Just see posture constantly, how it's conditioning the mind, craving a new posture when we get tired. Maybe just the craving to lie down or lean against something. When we're walking a lot, the craving just to stop. When we're sitting a lot, the craving just to get out. It's that constant movement, changing posture that hides the dukkha of the body. You know, the average person in the city isn't doing this. They just go through their day. Posture is merely just habit. When it's time to sit, get up, do things, they just do it. But there's no mindfulness of posture. Here in the forest, we can very easily direct our mindfulness towards posture. It sounds so obvious. It's one of the problems. It's seen almost like the kindergarten practice. You know, I know my posture. I know sitting, walking, standing, lying down. It's obvious. So the mind, the intellectual desire for the mind is you know, wants to read a few suttas and discuss them, debate them. There's nothing wrong with that, but when it comes down to the actual practice, tasting the apple or the fruit, we have to bring up mindfulness and direct it back to the body, to the posture, to the 32 parts, to the four elements, to the 10 asupa corpse reflections and so on. Keep establishing mindfulness and direct it back to see the body as the body, as it is. Practical reality is we tend to do it in bursts. We can contemplate mindfully for a while and then we need something more satisfying because the mind can't yet be mindful of the body for very long. So we use other meditation techniques to help and support the breath, other reflections. But we must keep coming back to the body and if you keep coming back to it over months and years, well it builds builds up a very powerful skillful conditioning force in the mind. We get used to observing the body mindfully as it is. So it gets easier and we see the results that come. We gain more confidence in doing it. We appreciate the role of body contemplation in the overall path, freeing the mind from suffering. So tonight we uh, still have chanting and patimokha and meditation to do, so I'll leave you with those reflections tonight.